The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. For the gift of grace, for mercy, for salvation, for justification, for sanctification. And as you continue to do your sanctifying work in our lives in the days ahead. We pray, Lord, that you would make us submissive to your will, that you would mold us and shape us into the people of God that you've called us to be. And we're grateful for your church, Lord. We're not, we're not what, um, what we can be. And I pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of the ministry opportunities, the evangelistic opportunities that are around us, just right next door, just across the street, wherever we are. Help us to be bold in our witness as a body of believers, but also as individual believers as we go about our day-by-day lives. Do your work in us. Mold us and shape us so that we might make a difference to those around us and in this community. Lord, we thank you for your word. Some have mentioned the treasure we have in your word today. And we we praise you for the opportunity to declare your word. And we pray for Pastor Greg now as he shares what God has placed on his heart. Open our hearts to your truth every single day, but particularly now. Uh, as we come before uh, the Word of God, presented by the God of the Word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you would, uh, turn in your Bible to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. I always love hearing those testimonies. Cry every time. Uh, But it's a joy to hear what God's doing in your lives and how He's using you in each other's lives and how He's taking... Really, um, sort of an ordinary group of folks and using them to do pretty extraordinary things um, and in each other's lives and in, in the world around us. Uh, this time of year is always a good time to reflect back, and that's why we do that, to look back and see what God's done over the last years. But it's also a, a time to, to look ahead. Um, as mindful as we are of God's grace and His goodness and kindness toward us, toward us in the past, the past is exactly that. It's the past. Uh, it, it, it's done. It's over. Uh, and what lies before us is the future. And in spite of the fact that God has done great things at Grace on the Ashley in recent days, there's much, much more work to be done. And so our goal this morning is to look to the book of Nehemiah. Uh, and just kind of in a very, very quick flyby of the, the narrative storyline Watch as God does something really remarkable through um, a fairly ordinary group of folks and see if there's any help provided to us looking forward to a new year. Um, So um, we're going to just jump right into the text this morning. I'm going to give you just a brief background and we're going to fly right in just uh, so that we're not here until next new year. Um, 
just we haven't been studying Nehemiah, so let me give you just a brief background on Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a narrative story. It's a story that tells us an event or a brief season in the life of the nation of Israel in a very disturbing and distressing time. And in the midst of a disturbing, distressing time, God raises up this leader, a man by the name of Nehemiah, who um, hears the word of God, who hears God's call on his life to do something. And by faith, he believes God and he goes after it. God's people rally, and God uses them to do some remarkable things. The problem in Nehemiah's day is the city of Jerusalem is destroyed, and uh, it's, in, it's in rubble, it's in shambles. It has been for about 150 years by the time uh, Nehemiah comes onto the scene, and, uh, and, and there's a problem. Uh, you may not know much about Nehemiah. Nehemiah, we're not told a whole lot about his background. We're just told he's a Jewish man and that he's the son of Hekeliah. And we're told that he's cupbearer to the king, King Artaxerxes. We're told uh, that in the text. King Artaxerxes ruled Persia 464 to 423 B.C. Um, and Nehemiah was his cupbearer. So he was a guy who stood close to the king. He was wealthy. He was probably handsome. You don't get to hang out with the king and stand next to him if you're unattractive. Um, he was cultured. Uh, he was living a good life. Uh, he was unique in his day. He had the king's ear. He was near him. He had opportunity to speak to him, and therefore he had power. He had the wealth that comes along with being close to the king, and he was a man of very, very great influence. That's the brief flyby of who Nehemiah is. And Nehemiah was probably just content in that life. But one day word comes to him that there's a problem. And we find in the very beginning of Nehemiah chapter 1, I'm just going to read to you the whole um, of chapter 1. Um, I think that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, I'm going to read chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of, of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we've sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Well, we see right off the bat what the problem is that Nehemiah finds out about. He finds out 
that his hometown, Jerusalem, the central location for the people of Israel, then and now, is in, it's in ruins. It's been destroyed. To- totally, completely destroyed. And there, there's a remnant of the people that are there, uh, but they are a reproach. They are despised. They are discouraged. And, and there's nothing much going on in Jerusalem. The Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem about 150 or 120 years before that. Fifty years later, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 50,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem and resettled there, but they were not able to pull together. They were not able to rebuild the city or even rebuild the wall or do anything. They were just existing there. They were hindered by enemies all around them. There was no work happening on the city, no rebuilding taking place. People had just sort of settled into their lot. And Nehemiah hears about this. People come from Jerusalem out to where he is, and he asks them, he wants to know, what, what, what's going on in Jerusalem? Are they rebuilt? Are things going, going well? Is God's city getting back together? And he's discouraged. He finds out right out of the chute, no, nothing's happening. Everything's still in rubble, and the people are discouraged and distressed. And Nehemiah reacts to that in verse 4. He says, as soon as I heard these words, did you catch what he did? What did he do? He sat down and he wept, and he mourned for days. He was broken. He was, he was burdened. And a couple of things we notice about Nehemiah right here at the outset is Nehemiah cared enough about what was going on to ask. He didn't, he didn't have to ask. He was living fine. He, he, his life was going great. He was doing just fine as being cupbearer to the king. He was wealthy. He had influence. He had the ear of the king. His life was fine. He didn't have to care about what was happening in Jerusalem. It really didn't affect him directly. Jerusalem could stay in rubble for his entire lifetime, and Nehemiah would be just fine. Physically, from a worldly perspective, it wasn't his fault the city was destroyed. He could have just kept on living his life without caring one bit what happened there. One author said this. He said, the worst sin toward our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. That's the essence of inhumanity. Nehemiah cared about people. He cared about their situation. And when he heard about what was going on, he was a man who was broken. He cared enough to ask. He cared enough to weep when he found out about it. He cared enough to pray about the problem once he found out what was going on. And we'll see as the story unfolds that he cares enough to act. And that's remarkable. He cared enough to ask. He cared enough to be broken for what was going on amongst God's people. He cared enough to pray about it, to go to the Lord, and to seek the the God of the universe's help in redeeming the situation. And we don't have time to examine this prayer, but it's a beautiful prayer. You just heard it, right? You heard the kinds of things that he prayed about. He confessed his sin. He confessed the sin of generations of his people. And then he reminds God of God's word in the past, promises that God's made. Do you remember what those promises were? If you disobey me, what am I going to do? I'm going to scatter you. Well, that's the current condition. But Nehemiah says there's a second part to that. And the second part is that it's after the but. But if my people come back together and they obey, God also had promised that he would do what? He'd restore them. Nehemiah knew that. God had promised. He had a mission to restore his people. And so Nehemiah, this man who cared enough to ask, who cared enough to pray, who cared enough to weep, who cared enough to act, puts a plan together. And he puts together a pretty quick plan. His plan is pretty simple from the outset. His plan is to go to Jerusalem, to rally people he doesn't know, and to rebuild the wall of the city. Now, that's fairly ambitious, isn't it? 
for a cupbearer to the king in a different part of the world. It's a pretty ambitious sort of a deal, right? Nehemiah's cupbearer to the king. He's not a wall builder. He doesn't know any of the people who are in Jerusalem, likely. There's a bunch of strangers there, and those strangers are discouraged and they're despised. There's not a whole lot of hope to this journey from a human perspective. But Nehemiah cared. He cared enough to do something about it. And as I think about our church, and I think about sort of where we sit in the the lifeline of a congregation, where we sit in the community around us, um, I think it's important for us to stop for a minute and think about what's happening around us. If I were to ask you this morning, how many people do you think live within five miles of the place where you sit right now? How would you answer that question? We're just talking out loud today, doing testimonies and whatever, so you can throw out a number. I don't mind. Five miles. 20,000? Who said that? 100,000? Well, give him some kind of award. 100,085. That was actually 2015. I don't know exactly what it is this moment, but the, the trajectory is going up. Did you realize within five mile radius of where you sit right now, 100,000 people? They're fairly young. 36 and a half is the average age. They have a relatively, comparatively high education level. Comparatively speaking, good income, but strapped with debt. Those things really don't matter as much as this statistic. Only 41% of those claim to have any sort of a strong faith. If a survey asked all of those people, and this was found in the latest census, how many of you are strongly involved with your faith? 41%. By simple math, that leaves how many? 59% that are not strongly involved with their faith. And if you want to just take it down to the bottom bare, bo- bare bones minimum, those who say they're not involved with faith at all, 29%. 29% of 100,000? 29,000. 29,000 people at a bare minimum within a five-mile radius who do not know Christ and who outright say that. There's another 29% who identify in a survey as somewhat involved with faith. You can be sure that the lion's share of those are people who have not believed the gospel and trusted their lives to Christ. That's another 29,000. That's a lot of people, isn't it? That is a lot, a lot of people. Within walking distance for a lot of us. And as big of a problem as a busted-down city in Jerusalem is, I want to tell you there's a spiritually destroyed city of people around us. Oh, they look fine when you see them in Bilo. They look great when you run into them at Walmart. They've got their kids and they've got their clothes and they drive nice cars and they can pay for their groceries, most of them. But inside, they're dead. Spiritually dead people. With all the enthusiasm for zombie movies in recent years, Consider them spiritual zombies. They're alive. They're walking around. But they are dead spiritually. They do not know Christ. They have no relationship with Him whatsoever. And they stand and they walk and they do their business every day positioned as enemies of God who will one day face Him and endure His wrath. They're lost. And they're dying. And they're going to hell if they don't believe the gospel. At the bare minimum, 29,000, likely tens of thousands, more than that. 
I wonder how that lands on you when you hear that. Does it land on you like the news landed on Nehemiah when he heard that there was a city destroyed and God's testimony in the world was still in shambles? Nehemiah cared. He cared enough to ask about it. He cared enough to weep about it. He cared enough to pray about it. And he cared enough to do something about it. We as a church sit in a ripe mission field. All around us is brokenness and lostness. And as good as, as good as it is inside these walls, and you heard those testimonies, and praise the Lord for that, as good as all of that is, if it stays within these four walls, that's not the testimony of a church that you and I want. That's not why God has instituted His church. In fact, primarily... He's instituted His church to do what we can do now. One of the only things that we can only do now, and that is reach lost people with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what? We get to heaven, all the stuff we experience in here is going to be even better. We fellowship, and that's wonderful, but fellowship in heaven is going to be better. We worship, and our worship is great, but worship in heaven is going to be better. All of these things we do internally will be better and perfect one day in heaven. The one thing we won't be able to do then that we can do now Let's go find those 29,000, 39,000, 49,000 people and give them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm concerned about myself and I'm concerned about us as a group to one degree or the other that, 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 that the thought of that many people right around us doesn't have the power to move us to tears. Probably on most occasions doesn't have enough power to even move us to pray. Certainly doesn't at least thus far, move us to act in significant ways. And I say that not to beat you up or to beat me up or to in any way disparage what God is doing in our church. I say that to motivate you. Because as we look out on a new year, we simply cannot go through another year and ignore that. We can't be here in 2018, January, whatever that first Sunday is, and all of that be unchanged at least as far as... Our effort is concerned. We have to care enough to weep. We have to care enough to pray. And we have to care enough to act. We put together a mission statement this past year. Do you remember what it is? I know you all remember it because you memorized it and put it to heart. When you wake up in the morning, you say it to yourself in the mirror. Before you go to bed at night, you think about it. Last thing, right? You say to yourself, you know what? I'm part of a wonderful church that is all about satisfying the spiritually hungry with the all-sufficient Word of God. You're saying that, right? Lie to me this morning. You can confess your sin later. That's not just a slogan. It's built off of a great commission that the Lord gave us to go and to make disciples of all nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and the Holy Spirit. To make disciples, to reach lost people. There are people who are starving spiritually, literally starving to death spiritually because they have not believed the gospel. And we've got the food to take to them. We've got to take it to them. That's what it means to satisfy the spiritually hungry. It's the first part of it. The second part of it is goes beyond reaching lost people and it goes to finding people who are spiritually starving but have believed the gospel but aren't being taught the Word of God and, and reaching out to them with the Word and teaching them and maturing them and growing them up in their faith, giving them a place where they can plug in and actually do ministry and grow in their faith. 
It's really two sprongs of what it means to satisfy the spiritually hungry. It means to reach lost people who are starving to death and to reach malnourished believers and help them grow to health and maturity. That's what God has tasked us with. That's the mission He has given us. That's what He's equipped us with spiritual gifts to do. And that's what He's called us to do. And that's why He's planted us in this location. If we don't do that, we don't have a right to exist as a church. The Lord needs to plant somebody else to do it. My challenge to you is to heed Nehemiah's example. Care enough to pray about the lostness around you. Care enough to weep about the lostness around you. Care enough to act on the lostness around you. That was the problem that Nehemiah faced. It's the problem we face. But thankfully, we have a God who makes provision for our problems. And in Nehemiah's case, God made great provision for the problem. I mean, the problem Nehemiah faced was going to require a lot of things he didn't have. I mean, Nehemiah, if you'd have met him on the day that he found out about that and he decided in his heart to do something, if you'd have said, okay, Nehemiah, give us your plan. How's this going to play out? What are you going to do? How's it all going to play out? Tell me how this story is going to go. Nehemiah would have said, I don't know. But he would have said, I'm certain of it. I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know how it's going to happen. I'm not sure how we're going to get it done, but I have to do something. That was as far as Nehemiah's game plan went. He prayed, he waited till the right moment, and when the opportunity came, he took it one step at a time. It was going to require great skills. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. He never built a wall. He didn't even know who was there to help him build the wall. He didn't know if he had any wall builders to, to talk to, much less whether they would listen to him or be interested in what he felt like God was calling him to do. But if you look at chapter 3 of Nehemiah, you'll see a, a long-running list of all the people that God ends up providing to see this mission through. Nehemiah's job was going to require the cooperation of an awful lot of people. I mean, think about that. He was going to have to go there, convince him, convince them, people who were clearly not already convinced, that something needed to happen and that they could do it. They were going to have to cooperate. He wasn't sure that was going to happen. When you look at chapter 4, verse 6, Nehemiah says, look, This is on the back end of this whole deal. He says, so we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. And here's what he says, New King James translation. For the people had a mind to work. Isn't that great? Why did the wall get built? Because lo and behold, God provided people, and those people had a mind to work. They decided, you know what? We're going to go after it. We're going to do it. We're going to set our minds to this thing. We don't know if we've got the skills. We don't know if we have the resources. We don't know if this can ever possibly happen. But you know what? We're going to set our mind to it and see what God does. That's what they did. NIV translates that this. The people worked with all their heart. You see, God's plan is accomplished when God's people hear His voice and they step out in faith and they decide to put their mind to work for His glory. That's what happened in Nehemiah's day. They didn't expect somebody else to do it. They didn't take up a collection to pay outsiders to come in and do that for them. They just all set their mind to it and decided, you know what? We're not going to tolerate the situation being what it is forever. We're going to go after it and do something. But we're all going to have to do it together. And if yet, we don't have time this morning to look through chapter 3. But there's all sorts of interesting people that God uses that He raises up to build this wall around Jerusalem. In chapter 3, verse 8, Hananiah. Get this. This is all we're told about Hananiah. One of the perfumers. The guy's a perfumer. A perfumer. He makes smelly stuff. 
so you don't stink. What's he doing? He's building a wall. Shalom, the city official, in verse 12, he and his daughters. Who's going to build the wall? I don't know. Hey, me and my daughters will go to work. They go to work. Verse 31, goldsmiths and merchants. People selling gold and business people. If you were to walk out into the, the construction project, you would have walked around that wall, and that's who you would have seen. You'd have seen perfumers, and you'd have seen merchants, and you'd have seen goldsmiths, and you'd have seen city officials with their kids out there putting their hands to a task that they had never done before. They didn't know if they could accomplish, but they set their mind to the work, and they worked at it with all their hearts. You notice in verse 5 of chapter 3 that not everybody did. There's always those who don't. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Oh, they were too good for it. See, there's always a few of those. Not everybody gets on board. Not everybody gets on board. This was going to, cry. This was going to require resources that, that Nehemiah didn't have. He, he didn't know how he was. He, it's a, a wall project. That's a funding nightmare. It really is. He starts out with the, the ear of the king who gives him some resources to get rolling. But it was going to require all sorts of resources. He didn't know how that was going to play out. He just knew that God had given him a mission. And he knew that it needed to be done. He knew that God had promised to, to empower the work already. And he said, you know what? Nobody else is going to do it. I'm going to go. I'm going to give, at, give it a try. And so he goes. And so he goes. You know, as we look out on the mission that's out in front of us as well, in some ways we're like Nehemiah in the sense that, you know, right now we look out at 29,000 people. How does a, a couple hundred people get out there and reach 29,000 people with the gospel? Or 39,000 or 49, maybe likely 50,000 or more with the gospel. I, I don't know the answer to that. How do you, you know, what are we, what's step A, B, C, D, E, and F? And, and, and who's going to do what? And, 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 and how's it all going to play out? And where are all the resources going to come from? I don't know those answers. You probably don't know those answers either. Nehemiah didn't know those answers. He didn't know them at all. In verse 20 of chapter 2, simply put, he says this, when asked about this, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. That's Nehemiah's answer. You know what his answer is? I don't know about all the resources. I know this. God will provide, and we're going to start building. That's all he knows. Right? God's going to provide, we're going to get going. That's actually a pretty good trajectory, isn't it? I don't know how he's going to do it, but we're going to set to it. We're not going to sit back and wait around and see if God provides everything and wait till we have everything in our hands and we can map it all out and we know for sure that it's going to work and then, and then we'll move. That's called sight. That's not called faith. Faith is what Nehemiah does. Faith is, says, I don't know how it's all going to play out. I just know that I have a good and faithful and great God, and I know that there's a mission to be done, and so I'm going after it, and I'm going to trust Him to provide. I'm not going to sit around and wait until I can count the pennies and the resources. So God shows Nehemiah a problem. He gives him a plan, a holy, a holy mission, if you will. Nehemiah responds in faith, and he sets out to accomplish it. And it's remarkable what God does through that man and through that group of people, through a bunch of perfumers and goldsmiths and merchants. If you read the story of Nehemiah, you'll find out that just as God has a mission, there's an enemy, there's an enemy, Satan, who has a counter strategy. Just as God's at work in the world, there's an enemy who's at work in the world as well. 
And he's got some, some, some favorite weapons he loves to use against the people of God. He's got great weapons and he has great delivery systems. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, I, I th- I'm thinking in military terms, you go in the Navy for a couple of years and you learn about stuff. And I've learned something about our military. We've got some remarkable weapons. I mean, some things that go bang big. It's more, but see, you don't need just a weapon. You need the ability to get the weapon to the target. That's a delivery system. You need something that goes bang, and you need something to get it where you want it to bang. Satan has both. He's got things that go bang, and he's got ways of delivering that into the midst of God's people as they set out to accomplish their mission. And we don't have time to, to, to delve into these. I just want to show them to you. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, you see his first his first delivery system and his first weapon. His weapon is discouragement and his delivery system is ridicule. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, Sanballat, by the way, is, a, is an outsider who is an enemy of God's people. He became angry and he was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore back their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish it in a day? Can they bring back stones to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And there's another of his buddies, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? If even a fox climbed up on it, he'd break down their walls of stones. That's encouragement from the outside, isn't it? But Nehemiah prays and he says, Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Don't cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they've thrown insults in the face of the builders. Sanballat, one of the enemy's personnel, happens to be in close proximity to the work that God is doing. And so the enemy deploys one of his best weapons that stymies the work of God's people, the weapon of discouragement. And the delivery system is this delivery system of ridicule. Feeble Jews, will they offer sacrifices? Are you going to finish this in a day? Can they bring back stones from the rubble? Even a fox will knock that wall down. You know, much of what they were saying by way of ridicule was actually, from a human perspective, fairly true. The problem is God doesn't view life from a human perspective. And just about everybody who's accomplished anything for the kingdom of God has faced ridicule along the way. Paul was ridiculed. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10, For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. He's not much to look at and he's not a very good speaker. Jesus was ridiculed. He was called satanic. He was mocked by soldiers at his trial. He was mocked on the cross. He was mocked all along the way and ridiculed. That's what happened to Nehemiah and the wall builders. Nehemiah says they laughed at us and despised us. And they did it publicly. What's the goal of that weapon of Satan? What's the goal of of deploying a weapon called discouragement via the delivery system of ridicule? The goal is discouragement and low morale. He wants to kill the morale of God's people and discourage them because discouraged people, people who have low morale, they quit the work. They stop working. And so that's what Satan's after. He ridicules them. He seeks to discourage them. Nehemiah has a solution. He has a a defense. In verse 14, he says to the people, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. 
Isn't that great? Don't be discouraged. Don't, don't even listen to those numbskulls out there. Pay them no attention. Don't pay attention to what they're saying. Remember who? Remember the Lord. And remember what about Him? He's great and He's awesome. They're punks. He's great. They're nobodies. He's awesome. They're making fun of you, but God's going to make it happen. Remember what matters. What God starts, He completes. doesn't matter what the odds are. There's a second weapon system and a second weapon that Satan has. It's the weapon of disturbance. And he deploys it through threats and secret plots. Verse 8 of chapter 4, they all plotted. This is Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, all the people that were enemies around them. They plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. If Satan can't discourage the people of God, then he just deploys his next weapon. And his next weapon is disturbance. Just have people come at you. Have people attack in various ways from the outside. That's exactly what happens in Nehemiah's day. All these folks come around from the outside and they attack. And the goal of this weapon is to get the people of God in a defensive posture instead of an offensive posture. To get them positioned so that they're on defense rather than being on offense. If you're trying to build a wall, you have to build it on offense. If you're on defense and you're worried about defending your life, you're not going to get bricks put on top of each other, are you? So Nehemiah comes along with a strategy. He calls the people of God and he says, you know what? We're not going to let this weapon work. He says to the men, put a sword in one hand and keep it to work with the other. Can you imagine that? People at the wall, building with one hand and a sword in the other. And that's a great strategy, isn't it? Hey, all right, you want to attack? That's fine. But we're not going to stop building the wall. We're going to protect ourselves if we have to. We'll be on the ready. But the mission is going to go on. Satan loves to attack God's people. He loves to attack God's people. He loves to attack churches particularly because he knows if he can get them on a defensive posture or if he can discourage them, they'll quit the work. And you know Satan is perfectly content to keep a congregation within the four walls of its own building. Because as long as they're there, they're not doing any damage to his kingdom. And he can, continue, he can continue to bury tens of thousands of people all around him and usher them into his presence forever. So he'll try to discourage churches. He'll try to disturb them and put them on the defensive posture. If those don't work, he pulls out one of his best weapons, that of distraction. In chapter 6, all of these enemies realize, they realize, and you can read about this yourself, they realize that, that, the, that the discouragement isn't working. God's people are still going after it. They realize that threatening them from the outside isn't going to put them in a defensive posture. They're going to keep at it. So he tries this weapon, distraction, in verse, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. They send a letter to Nehemiah, and they invite him out for a meeting. Come on out, come on out and let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Nehemiah says, but they were scheming to harm me. And Nehemiah's response is this, why should the work stop while I leave and go down to you? Isn't that great? You mean you want me to stop the work and come out there and have a meeting with you? You know what that is? That's a big distraction. And Nehemiah sniffs it out in a moment, doesn't he? That's a distraction. No way. The work goes on. That is one of the great weapons of Satan, isn't it, for God's people? If he can distract them off of the main thing and get them busy with other trifling little things, then the work stops. 
then the work stops. If he can get God's people off of the main thing, he may not be able to get God's people to abandon him, to abandon God altogether, but if he can just divert them off onto trifling little things, if he can get them busy with things that have very little impact on the main problem, then he'll be content with that. If he can get them busy talking, busy in Nehemiah's day, they wanted to bring him to the negotiating table. Don't you love that? It's a great tactic in politics, isn't it? The South Koreans love that. The Iranians love that. If we can just keep everybody negotiating forever, they'll never accomplish anything. That's exactly what goes on here. But Nehemiah wasn't afraid, and the people weren't afraid, and they weren't fooled. And when we get all the way to the end of Nehemiah, a few pages over, you have chapter 4, there's opposition going on. There's internal issues that pop up. Satan will often, if he can't attack from the outside, he'll attack from the inside and cause internal controversies to try and be a distraction, and so on and so forth. Well, you get all the way to chapter 6, verse 15 of chapter 6. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. How about that? All the people who mocked and all the people who ridiculed, all those who tried to attack and instill fear in the hearts of God's people, when it all came about and the wall was built, who was afraid? They were. And why? Because they knew at the end of the day, this wasn't about Nehemiah. And it wasn't about the perfumers or the merchants or the goldsmiths. This was God's work. And God did something that was humanly impossible. When I think about the the narrative of of Nehemiah, there are parallels, I think, to, to us as a people. No, there's no wall that we have to go build. Praise the Lord for that. I don't know how to build a wall. But there is a problem. And it's a problem that we can't ignore. God has placed us in a mission field full of lost people. People who are spiritually starving. And that is our main thing. That is the wall that has to be built. And there are people who who know Christ but are malnourished in this community. Some of your own testimonies, I'm looking out there, that, that, that was you at some point. For whatever reason, God connected you to a place where you could be taught and where you could hear the Word of God on a regular basis and mature and grow in your faith. There are thousands more people like that out there who need a church home where they can grow in their faith, where they can learn, where they can be built up to maturity, and where they can have a place to plug into meaningful ministry. And God has put us here. He hasn't put anyone else here. He's put us here. He's put you here and He's put me here. It's not somebody else's job. It's ours. Like Nehemiah, we've got, to, we've got to cultivate a heart that's broken over what's around us. We've got to get on our knees and we've got to begin to pray. And we've got to determine together that we're going to have a mind for the work. And that we're going to do it with all of our hearts. That is, if we want to be a church that pleases the Lord truly and if we want to really make a difference. We sit in a place where a lot of churches stay forever. It's called 
in church growth world, the 200 barrier. Pastor Frank's heard a lot about that over the years. I've heard a lot about it over the years. It tends to be the place where you get to right around 175, 200 people in regular attendance and a plateau happens. People get comfortable. They get complacent. They're happy with their church. They like what's going on. And they just put it in cruise control and run and roll. And that's where we are. It's where we are. We need to face that. We need to come to terms with that. And we need to each look at ourselves and ask ourselves the question, do we want to be in cruise control for another year? Do we want this time next year to still be there? Or is there a wall out there that needs to get built? Is there a group of perfumers and merchants and business people and teachers and carpenters, IT people, that are willing to set their mind to the work, that are willing to have a heart for the work, that are willing to rally around and do what it takes to make it happen. You see, I think God has put around us exactly the kind of people that He needs to make this happen. Exactly the kind of people. We may not look at ourselves and think that about ourselves, but I can assure you of this. If five years down the road from now, we can see the miraculous, look back and see the miraculous work of God in the life of this church. And we can see faces of people who were lost but are now saved. Faces of people who were spiritually malnourished who are now growing to maturity. If we can see this building filled a couple times on a Sunday with those kinds of people, we'll be able to look back and we'll be able to say, the Lord has done this. Because we were average and we were fairly ordinary. We were just people who cared enough to weep and people who cared enough to pray and people who cared enough to have a heart for the work and decided we were going to put our hands to the plow and go after it. And the Lord did it. Is that what's in your heart? Is that what's in your heart as we look forward to 2017? I pray. I pray for yourself and for myself that we don't allow ourselves to be in cruise control for a year that we decide in our hearts we're going to bust through a 200 barrier that every one of us is going to somehow put our hands to the to the plow and deploy out in the community outside of these walls and begin to take the gospel to people who need to hear it that we're going to decide that every one of us needs to put our hands to the plow inside to make sure the the wheels are functioning inside so that we can corporately get out it's time to plug in and get involved and get after it And I pray that this year will be the year that we do it. Are you ready? You're not ready. Are you ready? Okay, let's pray. God, we we look at Nehemiah and we see a man who just had a heart for you. A man who couldn't stand that your reputation in the world was in shambles. That people didn't love you, that they didn't respect you, that they weren't worshiping you. And that broke his heart. Enough to get on his knees and pray that you would do something. Enough to get on, get back up on his feet and go try and do something about it, even though he didn't know what he would do or how it would happen. Just a man who kept praying. Just a man who kept trusting you. Just a man who kept encouraging everybody else and a man who kept working. And we know Nehemiah is just a man. He was an imperfect man who had his sin like the rest of us. 
But you took that imperfect man and you did something remarkable with him. And you took a bunch of people who were discouraged, standing in the rubbles of their city. And you did something remarkable with them that made a difference. That restored your reputation all around. That displayed your glory for a bunch of enemies to see. Began the process of restoring true worship for you and the people's land. And God, here we sit in 2017, January 1. There's no wall to build, but there's a city to reach. Tens and tens of thousands of lost people all around us. Break our hearts for them, Lord. May that be one of the things we shed a tear for this year. Keep us on our knees praying, Lord. And give us feet that are willing to walk out and do something about it. Lord, we understand that we look at our own selves and we, we, we just seem feeble. We, we, we're, not the, we're not the richest people in the world. We're not the smartest people in the world. Not the most beautiful people in the world. We're not the elite of the society. We don't wield the kind of influence that can just command people to do things. We're just ordinary. But you love to take ordinary people and do extraordinary things. You've got such a long track record of that. And we believe you can take this ordinary group of people and do something extraordinary in the zip code. But God, I pray this morning that you would give us a heart for the work. That you would help us to understand what Satan's strategies are to to torpedo our work. That this year, in 2017, we wouldn't be distracted We wouldn't allow discouragement to take our hands off of the wall. We wouldn't allow any sort of outside influence to put us in a defensive posture. But that we would look to you, the God who is great and awesome. And believe. Believe that you can take a little band like us and change a city. Grant us that faith and grant us that motivation, we pray in Jesus' name.